The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very good morning, everybody. This is Sportbox. Welcome to the program this Monday morning. Tech tumbles as Chinese GDP comes in shy of Beijing's official target. COVID lockdowns hitting growth. Meanwhile, Xi Jinping consolidates his grip on power, preparing for a third term as president and maybe more. Boris Johnson bows out, putting former UK Chancellor Rishi Sunak on firm footing to secure the Tory leadership ticket over Penny Mordaunt and become Prime Minister as soon potentially as today. Italy's far-right leader Giorgia Maloney is formally sworn in as Prime Minister, unveiling the country's most right-wing government since World War II. And Wall Street eyes further gains after notching its best trading week since June, amid reports that some Fed officials are considering smaller hikes in the months ahead. Well, let's kick off the program this morning focusing on Asia and China in particular. Third quarter GDP growth beating expectations, rising by 3.9% on the year. That was a pickup from August and it brings year-to-date growth to 3%. But it was short of Beijing's target of 5.5%. The data, originally set for release on October the 18th, was delayed the day before. Elsewhere, retail sales rose 2.5%, which was worse than expected and a marked slowdown from August. Industrial production topped expectations though jumping 6.3 percent. I have to say Karen in the round these numbers were pretty awful. Um, There was the obviously the headline GDP data at 3.9 percent which I guess beat the expectations but looking under the bonnet some of the underlying drivers really begin to reveal the dramatic slowdown and that two and a half percent on retail sales was obviously one warning sign the year-to-date sales on property down 28.6 percent import data 0.3 percent and when an economy like china's the world's second largest economy is showing that kind of slowdown in imports That, I think, tells you that there are a lot of business people in China who don't think that the economy is going to be strong for the rest of 2023. Confirmation of what we've been hearing anyway, I think. Good morning, uh, by the way. I shouldn't be so so blunt on Yeah, Happy Monday. I think what we've been seeing anyway, global impacts of the factory floor. You've seen a slowdown in many economies across the world with aggressive interest rate hikes. And clearly that's going to be reflected in China at some point. I think the data just showing us that on top of some of the initial issues that we've seen for the mainland market. I mean, the COVID, the zero COVID policy is one that just about every market commentator has been talking about for many, many months. How much longer can China persist with this type of policy? And I think as we came up to the party congress, many had hoped there would be some form of a U-turn that was just not signalled really in, in recent days. So the market has been questioning that strategy as well, along with some of these macro headwinds. And the question is, what does China look like next year? I think this year is for many people one that's been a very difficult one because of the central bank action. Yeah. How much of it continues into 2023? Yeah, you know, my word of the morning is intransigence. 
Right. It's a bit of a long word, actually, yes. for, for, for this hour of, of the programming. But it's intransigence, uh, if I can say it properly. Intransigence in China, at the among the leadership. Intransigence in Japan. We will just continue doing what we've done previously until it starts to work. Intransigence uh, in the UK. We will continue doing what we've been doing until it starts to work. And, and of course, uh, Boris Johnson's uh, poison pill parting shot. Again, another ill-tempered conservative politician who doesn't seem to realize that the rest of the world just wants them to get on with it and stop arguing amongst themselves. Yeah, I mean, if you take a look at uh, the foreign exchange reaction as a result, I think we're back to the one-way trade again. US dollar strength has been the main game in town. There's been so much happening elsewhere, and we talk about this stability coming out of China. Mm. I think the market is still concerned that now we've got a lot of groupthink, and we know what that looks like in various different political parties where you have one very strong voice and no pushback. And I think the market may now be looking at the concerns around Xi Jinping that has stacked the Politburo with all of his loyalists, yeah. but there's now no pushback in China. If you talk about the sort of economic expertise mm. required at a very challenging point in history now, not to have uh, that type of backdrop uh, surrounding Xi, I think uh, the market might be taking a little bit of fright or taking some of the concern, at least, from the Chinese political situation. Yeah, abs absolutely. Well, let's look at these Chinese markets, because this is the reaction uh, to the intransigence, I guess, that we've seen. Uh, and um, it, it's a doubling down, really, isn't it, on the uh, policy positions that we've seen already on COVID, the property sector, common prosperity and the platform economy that's done so much damage to the likes of Alibaba. And as you point out, Karen, there's been a bit of an adverse reaction in the Asian trade here. And I suspect that that is uh, more to do with the leadership than it is to do with the GDP. Um, the technology sector in particular, uh, as we mentioned here, the approach that the administration has taken towards its technology giants has done an incredible amount of damage uh, in terms of the share price performance and in terms of the confidence that the technology investors have in the ability of these companies to actually break out and go global. We are down across the board here and as you as you can see Meituan and Baidu really taking it on the chin with losses around that 10% mark. Yeah, some reports uh, out late last week too that maybe quantum computing and AI technology might be the next uh, stop for the Biden administration after what we've really seen around the semiconductors for military. But uh, meantime, the Chinese President Xi Jinping has consolidated his grip on power, paving the way for a third term as president and breaking a decades-long precedent which could see him remain leader for life. He is now China's most powerful leader since Chairman Mao. Xi's re-election as General Secretary of the ruling Communist Party, no surprise perhaps, but the six people selected for his top team less clear-cut. Xi appears to have gone for loyalty over experience, bringing several close allies into the Politburo Standing Committee. Let's get out to uh, Sam, who can uh, tell us a little bit more about who these characters are and why their promotion is important. Sam. Good morning to you, Jeff and Karen. Well, I mean, it tells us a lot about, about the balance of power and, of course, President Xi Jinping's priorities here, as you say, a very headline-grabbing party congress, but they usually are. But it was very much norm-breaking in that, of course, he did 
As expected, not surprisingly, secure that third term as the party chief, the general secretary. And of course, we know that that is very much where the power lies here. And I think really this weekend was a reminder and a confirmation of President Xi Jinping's very firm grip on power, not with, of course, just securing that third term as the leader, but also as to who he stacked around him in his inner circle, as you suggested, choosing perhaps loyalists over competence and experience. At least that's the interpretation as far as many China watchers and analysts are concerned that he has chosen people who are considered very close allies and have worked very closely to him. So uh, with him, I should say. So if you looked at uh, who walked out on stage yesterday and in what order they walked out in, uh, it was very, very telling as to who he had chosen and the fact that he hadn't sort of made any concessions as we were talking about uh, on Friday, certainly with some of those members of the faction, uh, the communist youth league which of course peaked under Hu Jintao, uh, the former president, of course. And we did see those pictures of him uh, on Saturday being escorted out of the Great Hall of the People. And of course, there's been a lot of, lot of speculation and t- as to what happened there. But you have, of course, uh, Li Qiang, who came out uh, second behind President Xi Jinping on that stage. And so uh, that very much uh, paving the way uh, for him to become, of course, the premier in March after Premier Li Keqiang certainly indicated that he uh, would be stepping down. But in terms of other fresh faces uh, to this inner circle, this Politburo Standing Committee, uh, we've also got uh, Tsai Chi, who is a close advisor to Xi, uh, Xi Jinping. Uh, he is the party chief over in Beijing. You've got Ding Xuexiang, who's uh, Xi's chief of staff. And you've also got uh, Li Xi, who's the party chief over in Guangdong province. And that is, of course, uh, known as the world's factory floor, a big manufacturing hub. There are some returnees, of course, to the Politburo uh, Standing Committee. You've got Zhao. Lei Ji and Wang Huning. Uh, But as I say, it's really who's out of the Politburo as well that is quite telling uh, of President Xi Jinping's priorities and his grip on power here with, of course, Premier Li Keqiang being forced into retirement and not staying actually in the Politburo. You also had Wang Yang, who is part of this CYL faction, uh, not being included either. Uh, And uh, Huan Chunhua, of course, we were talking about him uh, on Friday as well. He has stayed actually in the standing committee, or I should say the central committee, not the standing committee. So that certainly suggests that she uh, is unwilling to make any concessions when it comes to that balance of power. Uh, Li Chang, many called it, of course, um, President Xi Jinping's close ally. He is, of course, the party chief over in Shanghai. There was a lot of talk, as we were discussing last week, about potentially having blown his chances over the handling of the lockdown. But it turns out uh, that uh, that's not the case. Some people had been penciling in other people people uh, because of that. Uh, But Xi Jinping certainly choosing loyalty uh, over sort of technocratic experience here and of course uh, experience uh, when it comes to dealing with the economy. Uh, Li Chang, it's interesting when you talk about breaking with norms here, uh, he hasn't actually been a vice premier and uh, it's interesting because there are two criteria when it comes to becoming the next premier. One is your age, the seven up, eight down rule in China, the unofficial retirement ceiling, uh, but also given your experience as a vice premier. Uh, so Capital Economics are certainly t- uh, tweeting this morning, it's not about competence or all diversity of views. It's about she getting more of what he wants and faster. Guys, back to you. Sam, terrific. Thank you very much indeed for that. And you mentioned uh, the departure of Hu Jintao in front of the cameras from the stage. Maybe we can just have a look at that video because it was 
astonishing and it did look to all intents and purposes like a power play. I know there have been some Chinese commentators on Twitter who've suggested that he was unwell and that's why he was escorted but it didn't really look like that did it as it played out. He looked like he was under a certain amount of pressure to leave. What about the US futures? Let's have a quick look at the futures before we get to Victor who I know has been waiting for us for a while. We're still uh, likely to open in positive territory here but uh, as you look at these numbers I think they've come off uh, some of their highs earlier on. Maybe that's a reflection into how the market is contemplating this sell-off that we've seen in Hong Kong and across the greater China stocks. Uh, Victor Shi uh, joins us from the Ho Moi Lam Chair in China and Pacific Relations at the UCSD. Victor, good morning to you and thank you for being with us. Just on that um, Hu Jintao departure, was that a power play or do you think uh, there were more benign reasons for him being escorted from the stage? Uh, thanks for having me. Um, so I am a skeptical of the purely health um, explanation uh, because the last official duty that he needed to perform was to vote for a new central committee, which he did uh, quite a few minutes before these events took place. So if he was feeling unwell after he voted, he could have said something to someone and he could have been escorted uh, to another room uh, for medical attention. Um, but yet he didn't do that. He waited uh, to sit back down uh, next to Xi Jinping, waited for all the reporters for, for the international community to filter back into the great halls of the people. Then uh, the events that we saw took place. Um, whether it was he who wanted to leave the room and then he was helped in doing so, or whether he was escorted out, expelled, uh, involuntarily. I think that is pretty unclear uh, from what I can see. Um, the other sort of uh, telltale sign was that when another one of his neighbor, Li Zhanshu, tried to help him get up, um, Wang Huning, who of course got to stay in the Politburo Standing Committee, a pol politically very savvy person, held onto the clothing of Li Zhanshu, preventing him from helping Hu Jintao, suggesting that whatever was happening had political significance, uh, and that if Li Zhanshu were to help Hu Jintao in getting up, he himself may uh, fall at risk of violating some kind of um, political, <laughs> uh, committing a political error. Well, we, we had Sam just walk us through the seven-member uh, standing committee, uh, and it's it's clear that the Politburo is is now um, packed with with loyalists, effectively the likes of Li Keqiang and and Wang Yang. More reform-minded individuals are now gone. Victor, does that imply that we now get Xi policy continuity? from here on in on all these issues that the market is worried about, like how the property sector is dealt with, how COVID zero is continued, um, whether common prosperity and the same policies towards technology companies will be pursued. Or is there the remote chance that we see a pivot here? At least Xi Jinping did talk about opening China up faster. Yeah, so, I, you know, we're not necessarily going to get uh, policy continuity across all different policies. 
But, um, you know, these policies are not going to make meaningful changes without Xi Jinping himself changing his mind. So I think this is the issue is that um, now that he's uh, more or less a dictator uh, of the country and, you know, certainly of the Chinese Communist Party, uh, no major policies will change without his approval. Uh, but we have seen him changing his mind on some issues. So, for example, on real estate, uh, of course, you know, two years ago, he set forth a set of very strict regulations uh, regulating the leverage ratio of the real estate sector. Um, these leverage ratios are slowly but surely being relaxed as uh, the real estate sector uh, falls deeper and deeper into the red. Um of course, these changes have been very incremental, and, and that's why they're, they're not really working at this point. And really, a much larger scale of stimulus and relaxation regulation is necessary. Um, so I think going forward, this is what we can expect is that, you know, it's not that nothing will change, is that it will take time for things to change. It will take time for people to bring information to Xi Jinping's desk to slowly change his mind on uh, certain issues. And this, of course, includes COVID zero. Victor, can I ask you about the economic story more broadly as we had the much anticipated data out as well? 3.9% uh, was a beat on the expectations, but still well short of the country's target for about 5.5% over the course of this year. So what happens from here? Is this a, a mainland economy that can weather a slower pace of growth from here? Uh, yeah, no, I think, well... Look, I mean, China can have slower growth. Uh, it's not going to cause any kind of political instability uh, because, you know, even when we see cases where there's negative growth, like in North Korea or Russia, um, you know, the leadership stays in power uh, just because for the elite, there, there really aren't other options out there. Uh, but of course, for Xi Jinping himself, who would like China to have a larger economy than that of the United States, slow growth is a challenge uh, for him personally and, and, of course, for the livelihood of people in China. Uh, the problem is that China has a lot of debt already. So uh, one sure way that China used to rely on to, to boost up growth was to engage in massive scale infrastructure and housing investment. Um, the capacity for China to do so is very limited. By my calculation, uh, total debt to GDP ratio is over 300%. Officially, even officially, it's like 270, 280% of GDP. Uh, and at the same time, global rates are going up. Can China really invest sort of 30, 40% of GDP uh, in excess to what they were doing already in order to boost gro uh, growth? I think that's extremely challenging. Uh, I think what the Chinese government can do in the remainder of the year is to marginally increase the level of investment uh, in the hope of, you know, uh, reaching uh, not the growth target 5.5%, which I think most people would say is not possible, but at least within reach of uh, sort of 4.5%. Victor, we're going to have to say goodbye, but thank you so much for the conversation. It's been very interesting catching up with you and getting your opinions. Uh, Victor Xi from the Ho Moi Lam Chair in China and Pacific Relations at the UCSD. Uh, for more on the new faces in China's elite Politburo and Central Committees, as well as who has left, who is out effectively, check that story out on cnbc.com.
And Jeff, I want to take us back to markets because it was something that was raised to us earlier last week about the notion of a Fed pause instead of a pivot. And that was exactly what markets were trading on Friday session, that uh, there may be some sort of slowing in the pace of hikes. We had Mary Daly over at the Fed talking about this, uh, whether it was time to start talking about slowing the uh, pace of increases that we've seen on some of the rates. Charles Evans as well, weighing in back getting to 4.5% and holding. So the market are just capturing some of the upside on the back of this uh, more than two percent for the major indices the dow the s p and nasdaq it also meant a fairly terrific week playing out for these stock markets 4.9 percent higher for the trading week on the dow for the nasdaq even more 5.2 percent so this week what's in store well the market's going to be focusing on the growth story but in the united states uh, we're just talking about china but it is a u.s growth rate now that it's going to be front and center core inflation also still important as we close out the week. And the other big factor, the big cap earnings from the tech uh, space, a lot of big name stocks will be reporting. And with that context in mind, it was worth noting that the FANG stocks very much in play last week. Even though energy was the top performing sector, you still saw FANG stocks very strong, seven and three quarters of a percent higher over the trading week. And this is we count down to show until season for those major tech names. I want to take you to treasury markets uh, and a look at where we're trading on that 10 year. 4.15. We got up to about 4.2 Friday session. Uh, the market uh, was closing out around just over 4%, same time a week ago. So a little bit of elevation was what we saw on that yield. Want to take you to the dollar and the dollar trade this morning looks like this. Sterling very much in focus as we count down to a ballot later on, potentially, or at least an outcome around the UK. And uh, Rishi Sunak seemed to be the front runner here now after Boris Johnson has uh, said he will not be running for the role of Prime Minister again. The 113 43 mark. We are elevated, as you can see, but drifting off the 114 handle that we had earlier on on uh, cable. Euro dollar is on the back foot, so we are seeing some strength here, specifically around that sterling trade on the back of politics. Dollar is firmer versus the Japanese yen. No doubt much to the disappointment of some authorities with talk of further intervention today. 148.91 the handle, eight tenths of a percent bounce. And uh, some of the chatter really focusing around the form of intervention in the backdrop is likely to be one that will stop the decline in the Japanese yen, but not necessarily support it, so slow the pace of that fall that you've seen. So, well, just worth noting that action we're seeing there. Dollar yuan rates are also trading higher. So, really, uh, we are seeing a story of dollar strength, except for in sterling, Jeff. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, what, what was that? Um, we were getting so upset in the UK about the central bank and the finance ministry moving in opposite directions. Well, the LDP is talking about spending $100 billion uh, in its new stimulus program, even as the BOJ is intervening in the currency markets. I mean, talk about pulling in different directions. Yeah, and uh, new, obviously, uh, bets coming back in, uh, the uh, short bets. new ones in recent weeks. I think that's fascinating as we talk about not just some of those other positions that have already been in the market for many, many months. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you. Hear from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on cnbc.com. 
these are new short positions coming in to challenge uh, the Ministry of Finance and the Central Bank, the Bank of Japan. Yeah, well, they, it'd be very interesting to see what they have to say this week at the uh, the BOJ meeting. We, we will talk some more about this a little bit later on in the programme. Uh, so just a reminder then, uh, we are now down to two. Former Prime Minister Boris Johnson has dropped out of the race to become Prime Minister as the UK prepares for its third leader, in two months. We'll be right back everybody. We'll take you down to number 10 and we'll get a view as to who will be the new occupant of that space. We'll see you after this. Moody's has lowered its UK financial outlook to negative from stable, citing a, quote, risk of sustained weakening in policy credibility amid the fallout from Liz Truss's mini-budget. But the agency maintained the UK's AA3 rating. The UK could have a new Prime Minister as soon as this afternoon, after former Prime Minister Boris Johnson pulled out of the competition, leaving former Chancellor Rishi Sunak and leader of the House of Commons, Penny Morden, as the remaining contenders. Sunak is the favourite to win, with the support of almost half the party. Morden has just 25 backers. She will need to find 75 more by 2pm BST to avoid being knocked out of the contest. If she does, party members will have the final say on who becomes Prime Minister, with the result announced Friday. If she can't make it to 100 or decides to step aside for another reason, Sunak will become Prime Minister. Let's get out to Arabile for more. Arabile, I was in uh, the middle of the countryside on Friday at a gift shop in a heritage site, and it was the only issue in town. Uh, the discussion point was who's going to take over as the next Prime Minister. This really is such a dominant theme across the UK. Just tell us where we stand now come Monday morning. Yeah, it certainly is a dominant issue, isn't it, Karen? So if one day in politics is a long time, then one can imagine that a weekend is an absolute lifetime. It was made even more clear by, of course, Boris Johnson landing back from the Caribbean, cutting short his holiday on Saturday, uh, looking to drum up enough support, according to him, that he has uh, to get the 100 votes needed to maintain candidacy to try and be prime minister, of course, following Liz Truss's resignation then uh, as prime minister last week, Thursday. And even though Boris Johnson didn't officially state his candidacy uh, or, or seeking to be nominee for uh, 10 Downing Street, he has officially canned the prospects of him leading the Conservative Party, however, uh, and blaming it on, quote, the inability to govern uh, if the party is not united in Parliament. So enter Rishi Sunak. Of course, the former chancellor in Boris Johnson's government uh, did already stand as the front runner even before Boris Johnson uh, decided to pull out of the race. And uh, he had maintained at least 140 votes by the seams of it. And at that point, it kind of seems clear then that he stands the best possible chance to be the next prime minister. Of course, you still do have Penny Mordaunt, who does stand with around 25 votes uh, at this point in time publicly of course and that would still set the tone we are expecting to kind of get word of where exactly she stands on the issue within today of course you have to have a hundred votes by 2 p.m. this afternoon in order to still stand as nominee for the position of prime minister if not and you don't get that hundred votes then of course the field does drop off. Rishi Sunak does stand uh, as the possible uh, uh, leader now at this point in time and uh, as a former investment manager I'm sure he himself will tell you that the numbers don't lie.
I thought it was remarkable, uh, Arabile, how bad-tempered Boris Johnson's uh, uh, notice was that he was not going to participate in this race. And, and I think the country is fed up with this infighting in the Conservative Party. They want a serious leader who's going to be serious about running the country in the interests of the British public not in the interests of the Conservative Party or a faction within the Conservative Party. Um, you got any sense as to how the membership or indeed the Parliamentary Party feel about Boris Johnson and the way he described his decision not to run? Because I know there was a lot of um, minute, my minute focus in mainstream media about, oh, his plane is touching down, he's come back, all the way back from the Caribbean and so on and so forth. But ultimately, this was a, um, a, 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 an attempt to try and carve out a setup that would see him come back and lead. And, and quite frankly, it, it just wasn't going to wash, was it? He didn't have the 100 uh, supporters necessary. And he's left, I think, in quite a bad-tempered way. You, you got any sense of the reaction to this? Yeah, so, I mean, if we, if we take on the weekend sort of notices of what was happening here, Jeff, he, he says he had drummed up enough support and reached around 102 votes uh, with regards to the nomination, and he wanted to ensure that the party unified, right? He had spoken to Rishi, he had spoken to Penny Morden to try and ensure that the, the party sort of came together as one. By assumption, it would mean that they'd all rally behind one leader with possibly him being the leader of of that but with that seemingly not being the case anymore Rishi not standing or not willing to just be his number two anymore it kind of gave a clear sense you did get a few members of parliament not the least Nadim Zahawi who actually in the morning of uh, Sunday saying that he would stand behind Boris Johnson as the new prime minister for a second time around but then later on in the afternoon or in the evening after Boris Johnson put out his statement that he was no longer standing then swiftly shifting of course then uh, to uh, Rishi Sunak as the Prime Minister so there is a sense of understanding that it would be even a catastrophe one of the members of Parliament Steve Baker saying that it would actually be tantamount to a catastrophe to have Boris Johnson back as Prime Minister uh, in the uh, and the leader of the Conservative Party so there's a clear sense of differing opinions here and not everybody really rallying or agreeing to have him back at 10 Downing Street. Can I just ask you a little bit about Rishi too, Arabile, because it feels as though it's Rishi's moment and he's certainly been on the right side when it comes to PR wins at this stage, warning about spooking the markets if we got the budget wrong and clearly that's what happened so he looks vindicated. But that said, this is a man who uh, hasn't had the easiest political journey anyway over the years. What type of leadership could we expect if it is a Rishi win today? Well, the market would certainly make you believe that it would be of sound mind, right? It would be one that goes in the opposite direction somewhat to Liz Truss's uh, economic stances. He was the one who warned quite vehemently against the unfunded tax cuts uh, that Liz Truss had uh, indeed uh, tried to rally up against as she moved to 10 Downing Street. He would then, of course, have stopped just short of saying, I told you so, effectively, by getting into the, 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 uh, the seat then, if that was to happen. Uh, sooner rather than later. Now, the interesting part to all of that is that because of his previous experience, of course, as investment manager, plus also as chancellor, kind of understanding that lockstep nature between uh, Treasury 
and the Bank of England would perhaps help somewhat in ensuring that there is a somewhat cohesive message when it comes to the country's fiscal pot and ensuring that the markets aren't as roiled as they were with some of the economic stances put forward by the previous government. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.